Hello everyone and welcome to the Heart Sanctuary podcast with your host Deirdre and now producer Chevy. That's me! We are shifting gears to bring you stories of personal transformation that we hope you will find as inspiring as we did. During these heart-opening conversations, ordinary people will share how their experiences of overcoming adversity changed them, the tools they found most effective and the lessons they learned along the way. Today, we are joined by Ryan Nareth, who was born in America to South African parents. He shares the fascinating story of how plant medicine and psychology helped his recovery from chronic pain after being knocked off his skateboard as a teenager. He also tells us about his experience of being mixed race in Snow White, Canada, and about the complexities of working in the cannabis retail industry. Hello and welcome. Why, thank you. It's so nice to be here. I love the wonderful soundproof studio you got here. <laughs> <laughs> Makeshift. <laughs> yes, it's, it's very nice. <laughs> <laughs> very nice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've been obsessed with Borat for a little bit there. <laughs> Thank you so much for agreeing to come yeah, and, of uh, and share some insights with us and your story. Perhaps that's a good place to start. Would you mind telling us a little bit? Oh, yes. Um, so my name's Rai. Um, I live in Vancouver, B.C., and I've been working in the legal cannabis industry since it's legalized. 100% just working in retail, not in anything as far as production goes or exporting or anything, just just retail. Um, and up until recently, it was just sales, but now I'm doing some more managing of staff, talking to different companies, um, getting to know the reps of each company. So it's a, it's a constantly growing task, whether it's skills to learn as an employee or just like the whole field because uh, it's such a new market. So the market is very unpredictable. Would you mind giving us a brief history of your personal background? Oh, yes. Um, I was born in the United States, Minnesota, St. Cloud. Lived there until I was eight years old. And then um, moved to Smithers, BC, where I lived there for two years. Uh, so it was from the States to Canada. And Smithers was a cool experience. It was very outback. It was an outdoor wilderness. It was wonderful. It was a wilderness paradise. Yeah. And so, you know, being eight up until 10, it was a good time to, you know, just ride your bicycle. It was a safe place, too. You could just leave your bicycle in a friend's front yard. And then we moved to Vancouver in Surrey. That's a s smaller city inside of Vancouver, um, the suburbs. And... Um, finished elementary school and high school in that same house we didn't move after that um at least for a long time we didn't move after that which was which was nice mm -hmm. um yeah I did high school in Clayton Heights you know just chilling in high school <laughs> <laughs> um in grade nine I was in I got hit by a car that uh was pretty unfortunate it affected me in a number of ways and so um, <clears throat> I think my whole cannabis experience began at that point when I was dealing with a lot more than I had been taught to cope with, I think, um, or just a lot on the plate. You know, as anybody would think as a teenager, 
focus on other things. At least in North America, there's a very specific idea of what you do when you're in your teenage years and uh, going in and out of like clinics, going in and out of different doctors and have to answer different questions, mm. seeing therapists to see if you actually have any of the pain that you're having or mental trauma. Just constantly feeling like you have to prove that you are hurting from the accident just to get through and win the case. And so um, it's really hard to get through it as a person, as a victim of those kind of things. I'm not a victim of it, but, you know, it's just like something happening and um, you just have no control over it. But you can't necessarily even just get past it, you know, because... So I was a pedestrian. I was riding my longboard just coming back from high school on a zebra crossing and then a blind, half-blind dude, old guy, knocked me. It was I that didn't have his proper license. What? Wasn't really supposed to be on the road at all. It was very unfortunate. <laughs> um, How old were you at the time? Grade 9, so I think I was 15. Yeah, I was 15. 15 years old. So yeah, that was a... In a struggling thing. Mm. I had a lot of pain. had to see a lot of physiotherapists, kinesiologists. Was it your leg, your back? What? It was everything. Because um, the car was basically going 20 and then stopped on his brakes at around like 30. So then I got thrown off. Fortunately, I didn't just jump off the hood or go under the, the car. But mm. it was still a pretty not nice hit. Um So I was riding my longboard. It hit me on my right side, on my knee. I'm uh, normal, so my left foot's forward when I ride my longboard. I think that is normal. Normal goofy. What is normal? N yeah, no, like normal's <laughs> left leg, goofy's right leg, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> when you ride in front or right back. Um, so uh, I was riding it that way, and then, yeah, hit me on my knee. I landed on the hood, um, was able to grab onto the hood, as it was going, and then when he realized I was on the hood, he slammed on the brakes, and I couldn't stay on the hood, so then I flew off, and then I um, landed on my back. I didn't have a helmet, but fortunately, I had my backpack on, and my backpack, I had a lot of textbooks in my bag, so when I hit my back, mm. my head didn't hit the ground, mm. but... Um, who, thought that, <laughs> who would have thought that textbooks could save you? Yeah, right? <laughs> like, because if I had it, my... My skull would have hit the ground and I would have been KO or who knows what would have happened. But I would, I don't think I would be able to have been where I am if I had hit my head that hard. Mm. Um, Lord knows what would have happened. But fortunately, that didn't happen. And uh, in effect, it seems like my back and all where the books were is like that's where all the damage is. So I have lower back. I have uh, hip pain. I have shoulder pain. I have neck pain. I have headaches. Mm. And then um, also because it knocked me on my knee, I have right leg pain, mm. mostly in my uh, knees and then in my ankles. This is kind of that whole thing. Mm. Um, fortunately, with proper exercise, uh, stretching, um, knowing my limits, <laughs> um, and working and listening to my body, I've been able to come overcome a lot of it. My heels, um, for the most part... My mid-back, um, my headaches still kind of come in and I can't do anything about them. Same with my hip pain. Mm. But, you know, there's ways of dealing with them without having to use pharmaceutical drugs. Um, Such as? So what have you used? All those things that you just mentioned. Oh, um, like 
Wait, are you talking about like pharmaceutical drugs or alternative? No. Yeah. What What have you? What has helped your recovery? So you say exercise, knowing your limits, stretching, listening to your body. Yeah, and then um, also smoking. You know, and mental health. Um, we carry a lot of our trauma in our muscles and our body, not just in our head. And it can affect the way we move, the way we interact with people, the way we project ourselves. And we can recreate those traumatic experiences out of a new experience just if we don't stop and listen to ourselves and try to understand where did that feeling come from? Because everything's justified, you know? Mm. Like, there's no wrong way of feeling about anything. And if you feel a certain way about something, I think all the more to just listen to yourself and say, like, why did I, why did I feel that? There's clearly a reason, mm. and if I'm not going to listen to it, then the body just finds a way of being louder, mm. and you can't, then you get to, you can't sleep, then your pain's more in your face, then you have issues at work, issues with family, just because you're, I don't know, you're, you're not allowing your body to digest what it's feeling properly, process what's going down organically, mm. and um, that was a big thing that I learned, because I mean, I was in the ICBC lawsuit for six years. Wow. Yeah, it was a really long time. And I was in so much pain, and it it was a very challenging period in my life. Um, and now that I'm done with it and it's out, I think I'm almost like four years done with it, it's not a center of my life anymore. You know, like, it's not... It was almost like, you know... If you do something three times in a week, that's a lot. You know, like you, if someone asks you, oh, what are your hobbies? And you do it three times a week, that's enough to be like, wow, you do that a lot, right? Like if you're an actor and you go and you go for tryouts or you're in practice or you're doing any type of drama during those that week and it's three days, people are like, you're a very active uh, actor, right? That becomes a person who you are. If you're a soccer player and you're going out to the field and you're playing three days... It's a, it becomes a big part of yourself. It's only seven days in a week. So for me, it almost became like it was who I was, you know, like those pains and that trauma. I couldn't let it go because if I let it go, then ICBC would just try to steal from me because I'm like, I'm clearly suffering. Mm. I'm clearly in pain. I'm not lying about any of these things that are happening to me. But if I'm not grueling and still feeling like it just happened, then they're going to look at you and be like, you're fine. Like, there's nothing wrong with you. And I had too many doctors tell me that I'm not going to be able to work past 40. I had too many doctors tell me that from my what? pain that I'm going to be like, you, you, you need to make sure whatever money of the settlement you get makes your rest of your life comfortable because you, you, you just don't have it in you anymore. Mm-hmm. So, like, from a 15-year-old to a 22-year-old, 21-year-old, it really shakes who you are, you know? There's that immortality mortality complex that children have where they're like oh that won't happen to me Mm. well it happened (laughs) (laughs) and you went from snowboarding (laughs) and all sorts of boarding yeah right to none of that Mm. and like the worst part is the company icbc would just um even spy on you so like if there's instances where they're like oh we don't really believe you they'll spy on you and take photos and they're allowed to do that they're legally allowed to do that so it's like you're really not ever on your own so it truly just becomes a part of who you are. And so now that I'm through it and I'm and I know what I need to do for my body. I've been to 
physiotherapy and kinesiology for six years. That's longer than a degree for me. <laughs> <laughs> and it's all practical. Yeah, and it's all practical. So I'm very aware with how to like work with my body, how to stretch, how to um, relieve my pain when I'm having my pain. And, you know, a smoke, it always helps with relaxing it as well. Mm. And the relaxation and, again, with the mental, it just allows you to re-enter that mental space of healing, mm. you know? Tell me more about that. How did how did you come to this understanding of emotional healing? And My mom, she's a she's a therapist, and she was um, she was always through the accident. And as it as I was going through it, I didn't appreciate it fully. I just felt that she wasn't really there for me, just lashing out inappropriately. Um, not trying to see where she's coming from as a mother and as a psychologist. Um, and she was telling me this whole time, it's like, you mustn't let it be who you are. Um, this will too pass. She would also tell me, like, um, I, my ment- the way I see it would make... The way I see things is how I feel the pain from it. So she would say, like, certain things like that, and I'm like, this, like, how could you say that to me? Like I'm, I'm in so much pain. Why? So you're telling me I'm the problem? Is that what? That's all I got out of it, right? Mm. But like now, as I grow up, I just stop and I think about it. And I've even had more conversations with my mom just to say thanks. Be like, you know, I didn't really appreciate what you were saying, and now I understand where you're coming from. And it's a place of love. And it's a place of recovery. Um, I didn't really fully understand it. You know, you come to a concept of all these doctors and all these people they're all specialists but you have to want to get better right Mm. so that's a mind shift that's a mental mental shift so went to physiotherapy kinesiology just like fixed me and then you just go there and you're expecting them to do it but they're not the ones that are going to live through that pain they're not the people that have to wake up with it they're not the people who have to plan their day around it, you know, like certain things like that. Um, So you have to take ownership of it. You have to take responsibility for it. Mm. My mom would also say that, like, yeah, you can't blame anyone for anything. Like, at what point, when are you going to take responsibility for yourself? I'm like, damn. So you're saying this is my fault? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's really beautiful that you, at 23 already, able to see... (laughs) You know, some people take a lifetime to realize what their parents' intentions were. Yeah. You know, so you've been um, fast-tracked in that way. <laughs> very fortunate, yeah. It's yeah. very fortunate. Uh, so what is your connection to South Africa? My mom's Cape Tonian. My dad was born in Durban. So in your nuclear family, there's you. My sister, who was born in Johannesburg. What's that like for you? Um, Being the only one in your family that was not born in South Africa. It's a unique experience, but it's a good, unique experience. Um, You know, I come back here and I have my cousins always be like, oh, he said it like that, you know. Or one person be like, why? When I ask for water, you know, it's it's a fun experience. Um, After you left the other day, so just mm -hmm. to... To give the listeners context. Oh, yes. Uh, we were going to record this a few days ago. 
and yes, uh, I wasn't feeling so well. Um, I'd had this sore throat for months and I didn't know the cause or whether it was contagious. And yeah. to err on the side of caution, um, you decided to rather not record that day. Yeah. And after you left, we, I had a discussion with Chevy about it and I, I, I said to him how much I admire that. So thank you. Oh, <laughs> because thank you. I think both of us, Chevy and I, are a bit of people pleasers and we could learn more about setting clearer boundaries. So I just wanted to share that with you that it was, it was powerful and it was necessary and it was appropriate. So, um, thankfully, I've now discovered that I'm <laughs> not contagious. It's <laughs> only <yeah>. allergies. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but it's what you were just talking about, this lesson. There's, there's lessons in everything, even if it's... Because um, you could have easily... I may have hesitated in that or, like, switched to the people-pleasing tendency to, like, okay, just go with it and, like, you know, try not to keep your distance or something like that. But... Um, but so I, I admire that. Thank you. Yeah, like, that's exactly... Yeah, no. Thank you for being so open to that, yeah. Because, like, if you were in the same situation and you didn't feel comfortable, then you would have let it go on. And then if you just kept it going on, then you would have finished it and you would have gone home and you would have thought about it and you would have had more than just a regret about not sitting there. There would have been, like, a whole build-up if you weren't already comfortable. And so it's like... That's why I also kind of said, you know, it's good to listen to your feelings when something comes up. It's like, hey, why did that come up? Because mm. there's a reason. And there's no one's ever going to tell you you're not feeling right. That'd be bizarre. <laughs> you're feeling wrong, you know. But people do, especially <laughs> as kids. It's like you're too sensitive, yeah. you know. <laughs> definitely, definitely. But we're not. You know, we attract the people and we attract the energy that we put out. That's kind of how I feel. I mean, that's why we're having this conversation. You and Chevy attracted each other. Chevy and Dad were very, very close for most of their life. And yeah. Chevy role modeled my dad. I role modeled my dad. Chevy and I get on very well, you know. We just we just put on that positivity <laughs> and everyone kind of gets with each other, you see. <laughs> <laughs> you have a very positive relationship with your dad as well. Yeah, and ironically, I have much thanks to give to the accident. So it was very tough to lose my friends lose a lot of the physical opportunities that I would have liked to have done, or even the side classes that I was I missed out on. Um, but through everything, my dad was always there. He always helped me. Um, he was very supportive. Um, I can't think of one criticism um, throughout the whole thing of the accident. And same with my mom. They were both always there. And, you know, when you're like, you can't do shit, you're like, <clears throat> I'm laying in bed and there is nothing I can do right now. You're like, my, my, I can't walk right now. You know, my legs are too sore. Or like, my knee is killing me. I, I genuinely can't go up and do these things. And they'll come and they'll bring you food. And I'm like, wow. You know, you appreciate those small things a little bit more. Because mm. your world becomes so much smaller. It just becomes that room, you know. And then like, people giving you those things, it's huge. Because it's such a small world. So... I was very grateful, and I'm like, you know what? This is like a great opportunity to, not a great opportunity, but it was a great opportunity to recreate a relationship with my family, my, my mom and my dad. I'm grateful that as, as sucky as everything happened, I had more time and more opportunity to create a, 
a stronger relationship with my dad. And my dad also has really bad back problems. Um, when I was a kid, he got into a really bad car accident. I remember him having to get a whole bunch of plates and bolts and all these things in his neck. Because one of his spine, or a couple of his spine, completely fractured. Excuse me. Excuse me. And they needed to put plates in there. And so, from a very young age, Dad couldn't do anything with me. And he was also, unfortunately, having to take painkillers because of how much it, it hurt him. And so, when we... It would also have not good effects, you know... It, doesn't allow the person to be truly who they are. It almost makes them a different, it completely makes them a different person. And the person can't even remember what, what happened. So it was, it's mind-altering. It's, it's crazy. I'm so grateful that it's finally coming out and people are not, people are finally being like, yo, this drug breaks families. Like, let's, let's quit it with this. So it's, it's good. But back on with my dad, um, it, it was very fortunate ironically, that he also had a lot of pain. So when I was in high school, we would take care of each other. If I had a good time, good period with my back, and he wasn't doing a good, wasn't doing good, we would literally take care of each other, mm. make each other food, um, help each other if we needed to get up and down the stairs, you know, go grocery shopping. We, It was like a growth in a relationship where I needed him and he needed me. It wasn't, and um, we were both, we both just had each other. Like we we couldn't afford a nurse or anything to come in and take care of us. So we're like, yeah, let's let's take the make the best of this. Yeah. And so after that, Dad and I grow a very good relationship. And he also is the one that introduced me into cannabis. Um, he saw how much the painkillers were affecting me, and I think him seeing how much it affected me had him reflect also on himself. So like those things are crazy, man. Those, and I didn't even take that crazy of painkillers. But when I did take those painkillers, I got suspended for a fight um, that I started completely, like completely unprovoked. It was just, <laughs> maybe that's where I got my mischief out. <laughs> and um, then another time, um, it just didn't help me think right. I got uh, almost suspended by the principal by just completely giving lip to the office where I was just like vulgar because I didn't get my way about something, because I was just so angry. Yeah. And then um, Dad was kind of like, hey, hey, yo, I doesn't usually do that. Like, <laughs> he's usually pretty chill. Like, I don't know where this came from. I think it's those painkillers. Um, also, of course, a lot of the pain. But then I, then he waned me off the painkillers. He got me a green card. And um, I found that it really helped me with my anxiety some strains helped me with my pain some strains helped me with exercise some strains helped me with stretching but none of them did all of them mm. and I was very interested in that and I noticed that some of them would make me angry and some of them would make me feel more pain and some of them would make me almost paranoid and I was like interesting and then I was enamored and I just almost went on a jihad to understand what was going on, a crusade mm. of truth to figure <laughs> out what's going on with this cannabis. Um, and so then I would give my dad weed strains too, and I would look at him and I'd be like, how does this work with you? I would just say, test it on me. Kitty pig him out <laughs> with the with the clinic's weed that we would buy. And um, 
some exactly the same thing. Like some of them would make him mad. Some of them would make him extremely happy. Some of them would make him paranoid. Some of them would make him spacey. All of the same things. Some of them would help him with his pain. Some of them would do the contrary. So it was like, this is interesting. And so then I would smoke a strain and it might say, help me with my pain, help me with my anxiety. It doesn't make me sleepy. But then there's one that dad'll smoke it. It'll make dad angry, help him with his pain and make him sleepy. So I was like, what? So it affected you differently. Yeah, I was like, what? How does this work? Like, isn't it this all about THC and the, the strains and like mm. that it? But no, it's it reacts differently to everybody. And everything is, every person interacts with the can- cannabis in their mind a little differently. Some people are just, I mean, science, I don't know. I don't know why some people get paranoid and some people don't. Mm. I think it might i definitely think it has to do with terpenes but why certain people react differently to terpenes is still something i don't really know what are that terpenes are a, basically a flavonoid so it's the smell that you get from the cannabis so terpenes are found in not only cannabis they're found in your fruits your flowers your grass your trees found everywhere in nature it's just the smell so there's terpene called pinene, cedarline, terpanoline, neurotolol, mm. limonene, myrcene, carophylline. All those are found in nature. And we use them as almost essential oils, you know? Whereas like those essential oils of eucalyptus, that's bisabolol. That's basically what that is. It's a high mm. concentration of bisabolol, the terpene. And that's what that smell is and that effect. And that's found in cannabis. So, I mean, that would that's, from what I found, really the biggest ways of distinguishing how a plant is going to treat you or how you're going to feel. Mm. Um, so then I found that certain strains would help my dad with his pain and help him do his best with his day. And then there were strains that I found that helped me too and so that was really I was really interested in that and there was just so much mystery mm-hmm. you know like there's so much unknown yeah there's so many years left to explore what there will what will happen and what won't happen you know like it's only been legalized in 2017 and we're in 2022, and the world was closed for three years. So, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's only, like, two years that that market happened organically. Yeah. So, the world is following, but, I mean, I'm very interested to see where everything goes. After I found this passion, after I graduated high school, and I was in university, I started working for a gray market cannabis store and that was crazy like what does that mean so there's legal market which is like you know it's all legislated everything black market when everything there isn't legal and if a cop came in then everything getting taken away and people might get arrested gray market means there was a section in the legal system where it wasn't quite illegal but it wasn't quite legal so a police officer could come in and bust, but no one would get arrested. So um, I don't know if any of your, the listeners know the show Disjointed, 
but there's a TV series on Netflix called Disjointed, and oh wait, I'm gonna I don't want to spoil it. Holy moly! <laughs> <laughs> oh, go check it out. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'll check it out. For it's sure. um, but it's, it's very similar to that in many different faucets of reality. It was uh, but it was really cool. So like, we sold capsules, we sold joints, we sold flour, the flour or daka or you know weed. It was either in uh, 3.5 grams, which is an eighth of an ounce, 7 grams, a quarter of an ounce, 14 grams, half an ounce, or 28 grams, an ounce. And it was all in those measurements when you're buying smaller amounts of cannabis or medium to large amounts of cannabis. Mm -hmm. People who are buying big amounts are getting kilograms, and they're not going by ounces because that's too many ounces make up a kilogram. We sold it in that way, and then in the back, we'd also roll our own joints in-house, which was awesome. If the joints dropped on the floor, we put them in a pen holder, and then anytime you're on break, you grab that joint, you go and smoke that joint. Um, if if someone wanted the capsules and you dropped the capsule, you'd go put it in a bag, you'd put it in the communal section of the fridge. At break, you'd pop that pill, and it was just THC or CBD, and it was it was crazy. It was you were you were like high all the time on the job. It was crazy. Only thing we didn't do is we didn't grow there, um, but. Yeah, we didn't smoke in the building either, but it was it was so much fun. Um, so which part of that would not be legal? Like if the cops came in? The weed part. Also, the taxation of it isn't like fully proper. So we were basically selling it while giving tax, but it wasn't... This is a strange thing because cannabis wasn't legal. It was still an illegal substance. So I think it kind of mimicked a little bit of the New Amsterdam. You're um, not New Amsterdam, the Amsterdam kind of culture where once it gets into the coffee house, it's legal. But I could be completely wrong. Yeah, gray market. I think... Sounds a bit great. <laughs> yeah, it's very gray. You know, Blurry. people are like, eh, it's legal, yeah. it's not legal. Yes. Where's the line? Yeah. And then I worked there when I turned drinking age or age of majority, worked there until the legal market came out. So I worked there for about like four months, three months, November to January, and then it, the legal market came out. So I only had like three months in the gray market in Canada. And then once the legal market rolled out, there was no more of the rolling in the store. If a joint dropped on the floor, you got to smoke it because everything came in packaged and boxes. Mm. Everything was accounted for. Everything was put in the system. If anything went missing, everyone knew. Um, it wasn't just kind of like that same, yo, man, this joint hit the ground. Can we still sell it? No, no, no. It's like it's in a box. It's yes. like if, if the joint's broken, like sucks to suck, that seems like a you problem. And they're like, there's like so much less care and support for the for the product, at least where I was working when they did the transition. And then even us, like we weren't really able to say a lot of things. There was a lot of words that we had to change you know we couldn't say joint you had to say uh rollies or pre-roll pre-roll is a big one couldn't say like weed with flour okay um shatter butane hash oil you know like all these different ways of saying things um why is that because the government didn't want to have the stigma they, didn't, they wanted to kind of kill the stigma, so they had certain terminology that they were like, this is okay, this isn't okay. This is okay, 
this isn't okay. I think there was a lot of, there is a lot of stigma. There's a lot of fear everywhere in relation to this product. And I think, again, it just relates to the unknowing. We mm. know so little of it. It's very easy to fear something you don't know. Um, but just the way they legalized it, a lot of taxes to just kind of prove this is better for the community. There's more benefits for the community than negativity for the community. Mm. So there's a lot of taxes that was generated through this from Canada since they did the legalization. Um, and it's mainly supposed to go to just the municipality because the municipality has a control in how it's legalized. The federal government just say, you can do it. Then each city or city council or municipality have to decide how many stores they have legally, um, which stores get to have the place because it's not really that open. Everyone has to kind of prove why they should be entrusted with that because there is still such a stigma. Mm. There's a common concern about cannabis as a gateway drug. Could you speak to that? Yeah, because it's like, that's such a sensitive topic. And everyone is so quick to say that. And everyone has different reasons why they go into it. But I think the main thing is if there's a, if it's a relation aspect of yourself or the product or the, the herb, mm. then your disrespect to yourself is just going to reflect in the way you take it. You know what I mean? Yes. So. It makes good sense. Yeah. All of my friends never got into any other drugs. All of my friends aren't on the street. All of my friends aren't doing any of those kind of things. They're not drug dealers. They're not gun pushers. I truly believe that it is, it is not a dangerous substance. It slows individuals down. If people are, if people understand themselves or whatever mood they're in, when they take that substance or that herb, they're going to magnify that. So again, it's just that escapism. It's like, are you happy with where you are now? No. Well, you don't have to fix everything now. You just got to think about it, mm. you know? But if, you're, if anything's stopping you from having that conversation, I think that's a gateway of a whole lot of bad possibilities because mm. then there's no growth. And like, we're only here for so long. How many times do we want to live the same day over? Yep. <laughs> you could argue that it's like every other relationship, you know, if it's based on a dysfunctional start and intention, then it's not going to work out. And then they, you could open yourself up to negativity or bad yeah, outcomes. Right? But yeah, just like people. It's just like, sorry. In the same way that you deal with people, yeah. <laughs> you know, you deal with it's a relationship because it is a, a plant medicine. Yeah, it's um, but I think it's so much more than that, you know, it it truly is for the people who, you know, I mean, like it's in so many ancient spiritual rituals. It's in so much of the early like, I mean, Moses and the burning bush. That's a pretty cool example. You know, like it's it's there. And I feel like it's almost fear that mm. people say it's a gateway drug. It's entirely fear. Because like I said, the unknown is, is frightening. But through the cultures and the times and the periods of humanity, every culture that has been exposed to it can find the beauty in it. Mm. And I think that's, that's too many. The denominator and the numerator, you know, it's too many of them are going for it, you know. Yes. And they're still like 
I don't know. I feel like it's a reflection of self as well. It just helps individuals be themselves, understand themselves, listen to themselves. That inner monologue gets a little louder. Um, help If it helps you feel what you're feeling a little bit more, then it can help you address certain things that you can by then move on from or mm-hmm. grow from. I don't know. I, th- I think it's a wonderful, miraculous herb. And if it wasn't for that, I definitely don't think I would have seen the pros and all of the things that were happening with the accident. Mm. I don't think I would have been able to um, have truly been as grateful as I am to the experiences that I've been given. So I think it's given me a level of optimism, a level of being able to be myself. You know, like journaling is great to leave your mental health good and seeing a a therapist and all that. But sometimes you just need that that loving hand, you know, like when people talk about taking mushrooms mm. and it's like a microdose and they just feel like they're getting hugged, but their soul is getting hugged. Mm. And they're like, I'm not sad anymore. You know, like how's I mean, we take such terrible drugs for depression and anxiety that make us so zonked. Now, I would much rather feel like hugged my soul than mm. zonked out of my mind and not being able to comprehend what's going on in front of me, because at least then I'm. I'm able to recognize what's going on with me. I'm able to be myself. And like, I mean, I feel like ourselves is the time that we spend, you know, and how we project ourselves, what ideas we decide to invest in, who we decide to invest in. Like, the clock's ticking, you know? Mm. So like, at every point in the time, why not just be yourself? There's so few things we have in our control. And the world constantly trying to bring everybody down. And if you need a little something to help you just to keep up, to Mm. be yourself, Mm. not changing who you are, not disturbing the family lessons that your parents taught you when you were a young child, not disrespecting any cultures, you know, it's, you can still be everything that you were, but then just, if if you can handle it, just a little bit more of yourself, you know, like that's why I say spiritualities, a lot of individuals were, were able to find the... The, the joy and the bliss and cannibalis but a lot of people just mentally can't and it is a journey I don't I don't think it's not you know for people who aren't willing to take responsibility for that mm. keep drinking you know <laughs> it's, it's not it's not something it's not something you can go brainless in mm. it's a journey if you want to just turn off and you want to just not be accountable and responsible. Drink some alcohol and use the real gateway drug. <laughs> because the moment responsibility and respect is lost. You could even argue that <laughs> breast milk is the real gateway drug because everyone who's doing the hard drugs started on breast milk. Really? <laughs> true. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's true. <laughs> How far back do you want to take it? Yeah, right? <laughs> like, oh man. So at at your pot shops they called right. Well, cannabis retailers. Capita- cannabis retailers. Um, you sell medical cannabis. We. Yes and no. We sell product that is available in the medicinal market. However, we do not sell it at medicinal prices. So we are okay. a recreational okay. retail store. So anyone who comes in there with a doctor's note. Anyone who comes in there who needs their insurance to cover it, 
they don't come to us. They need okay. to go and talk to the companies. So there's like a whole membership that a legal patient has to do. And they don't basically have the privilege of having a huge market like how the retailers do. Basically, there's these companies called LPs, licensed producers. They're the big guys. Mm-hmm. Your Walmart, your Target. They, they grow all the weed. Um, then they sell it to the government. The government purchases it. And then we buy it from the government. And so we have a, a range of products that we can purchase from and a range of LPs. Whereas a medicinal person they take the point of where the government would have been in the retail point. So they sit where the government is. But, of course, they can't afford to buy everything. So they decide one LP to give their license to or their their patient's services to. So then they can go to that company. I think they can go up to, like, two or three different companies to have memberships. But those those companies then can sell directly to the patient, gets delivered to their door via mail, um, or Canada Post, you can pick it up the post office, um, and that's how they get their stuff. The medicinal people, but ours is more recreational. What inspired you to grow dreadlocks? It was the accident. It was my self discovery with the cannabis. It was the insurance struggle, and it was like just. Teenage self-discovery, yeah. It was um, a self-empowerment thing, yeah. I was very enamored with the philosophy of I and I and, you know, recognizing oneself and recognizing that there's divinity in everything. Also feel like I just had so little ways of expressing myself and... Um, escaping that whole accident. So whenever I would get really anxious, instead of doing anything else, I would pommel my hair, and the dread just kind of came. And it just became like an anxiety mechanic mechanism for me to calm down. I would just like start pommeling it. And then I was like, hey, something's happening here. Why Why don't I keep going? And I turned a positive out of a negative from the overwhelming anxiety and stress and depression I was feeling. I'm like, I'm going to turn it into something I like. And then boom, bada bang. Dreadlocks. And I love playing reggae. When I was little, my dad would leave me at one of my uncles. Not my uncle, but you know you know how it is when you don't grow up around family. Everybody's uncles and all families near them. And uh, his name was Devin Evans. And he used to play with the Whalers. And he was the, the drummer. And he taught me how to play reggae guitar. I really loved, you know, reggae. It was just like a complete mixture. It was the mixture of the world together you know african chinese indigenous you know all those different things north american african-american it was it was it was a really nice blend and i i really found home in it just because of how its identity was its mixedness and that really resonated with me and then like bob marley was like the pinnacle because he was half black half white and in the States and in Canada, that's just kind of what people saw me as. Because, you know, like over there, they don't have generations of just people. Like here, like South Africa is so different when it comes to people of how their families are. Only like now recently are people starting to mix. But like 
we've been mixing for so long that we're just like this mix, you know, we're like our home fruit punch. <laughs> so like over there, they can't even, they can't even, they don't, they don't know what box it goes into. So it's completely other. Mm. And like everybody knows Bob Marley, you know, he was, he wasn't really fitting in his trench town. He didn't really fit in with the white folks. So he just found that he did what he did best and he listened to himself his own self-experience and I was like damn that strength right there like both sides hating on you people being like oh he only got famous because he was the whitest whaler and it's like I mean I don't know about that but like (laughs) he got hit on both sides man so I don't know I've that's that's kind of where I I, it started for me to start all went through and their self-strength and their level of stoicism their level of self-respect when the system is degrading you and you're still to say no i'm worth it you know Mm. so i just that just was truly powerful and i role modeled it very much and so i wanted to learn as much as i could from it so i was like just gonna grow dreadlocks learn to yeah how long did you grow them time wise and centimeters wise inches um, I started them, I started growing my hair out when I was 16, seven, when I was 17, 16, 17, and then I started dreading them when I was like 18, 19, and then maybe a little sooner than that, actually. Maybe I started, yeah, I probably started dreading them 2017, 2000, yeah, 2017, and then I just kept them growing afterwards. By the time I cut them, which was this year, sometime, earlier in the year, it was from the top of my head down to about my belly button. Wow. So, like... 60 centimeters. Yeah, it was really long. I had really bad headaches. Ironically, it caused me some neck pain. I was like, oh, damn, car accident, dreadlocks. I can't just cut off the car accident, so let me just cut off the dreadlocks. <laughs> <laughs> and what's it been like without dreadlocks? It's weird. I definitely miss them. I'm like, oh, this is my hair. It's This is weird. <laughs> but also, it's a lot less work. Um, but it is what it is. I miss them, but they also hurt my neck. It's uh, more of a motivator for me to get in shape. Uh, maximize my pain efficiency and being able to like deal with it immediately strengthening and then I can do my dreadlocks because I had fat dreadlocks I had like 13 on my head 12 on my head they were like this thick wow (laughs) (laughs) that's dedication man yeah right it started small and then I put them together put them together put them together and then The dream came true. It's exactly what I wanted them to be like. So sad to cut them. <laughs> but it had to happen. And it was good because it was a release of all that energy, a release of that tension. And I feel like I definitely dropped it. So now I can open myself up to new experiences, not allowing the past to you know, mm. affect what I'm going to make. You quite literally let, let it go. Exactly. <laughs> literally and figuratively, you see? Yes. <laughs> But yeah, I think that was the big reasons why I decided to grow dreadlocks, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Rai, for taking the time and 
answering all these questions. My pleasure. From thank the heart. You, yeah, thank you for having me. Um, yeah, thank you so much. It was wonderful. <laughs> Do you have any parting things you want to say? Let's take let's destigmatize cannabis, man. Cannabis is not a drug. It's an herb. We hope that this episode was beneficial for you. If you'd like to share your experience, please leave a comment below. We look forward to sharing the next episode with you soon. Thanks for listening. Bye.